I don't know about you, but I love music. I enjoy music. Uh, I also know that whenever you have music, not all music fits every context just the same. So you probably have certain playlists that you'll play at different times. Uh, For me in college, uh, I used to have a road trip playlist that always began with Life as a Highway by Tom Cochran, right? Uh, Now it's Tripoli, but whenever I do play it, what's interesting is uh, I I know that those aren't the same songs that I might want to play for my three little kids before they go to bed, right? Just would not exactly create the atmosphere that we're looking to create. Sleepfulness, quiet, loneliness, right? So certain music goes with certain contexts, but what we've also found, I think, historically is sometimes there has been uh, opportunities or or, or occasions where there have been uh, songs that have been sung in the midst of a kind of devastating circumstance that have seemed quite strange and even disturbing. Uh, So for instance, you might remember that during the sinking of the Titanic, uh, there were eight men who played near my God to thee as the boat sunk. And in fact, we uh, believe that none of those men made it out alive. Uh, Another occasion that you might have heard of historically is that it said that Nero uh, actually burned down Rome and that he played his fiddle as it burned. Now, there are a couple things wrong with that. Uh, One is the fiddle didn't exist yet. Um, The other problem is that we're pretty sure he was 35 miles away at the time. But I believe that 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 picture of him playing the fiddle as Rome burned and that devastating destruction was a picture of the way that people viewed him, an evil leader who cared little about the people who were facing this destruction. Now, the reason I'm saying this is we are coming uh, in our series looking at Jesus to Isaiah 24, and as you read this, you might have some of those same kind of impulses as you read this text and as we just did. I mean, all of this text is about devastation. And yet, in the midst of it, in the very middle of this text, at the climax, you see this song being sung joyfully by the people of God who are being gathered from the nations. So we have to ask ourselves, why is it that these people are singing so joyfully on this occasion? Does that say something about God? Does that say something about them? Well, that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. Uh, You'll remember that we are hitting the section of Isaiah 24 to 27. Uh, Now, so far, up to this point, God has appointed, um, He has told us that He is sending a Spirit-anointed King who is going to come and save His people and set things right. And beginning in chapter 13, all the way up to 23, we've seen 10 oracles against the nations. And I believe that this morning, Isaiah 24 kind of summarizes all of those judgments that we've been told about, and it prepares us for an end-time vision of what is going to happen when Christ returns. Now, what's interesting is, as you read this, we're going to notice that it looks very similar to what happens to Adam in Genesis 3. You'll remember that he sinned against God, and the earth was cursed and fought against him. But here, it has exploded into a global epidemic, such that the whole earth is fighting and warring against all of humanity who has sinned against God. Now, I believe what happens here uh, tells us, we get a clue in verse 10. A clue in verse 10 about the degree of the utter destruction that is coming It's a destruction that I believe we are being told eclipses even that from which God saved Noah from. So you'll notice in Isaiah 24.10, he uses this phrase, the wasted city is broken down. 
The wasted city is broken down. Now, this word for wasted is actually the exact same word you'll find in Genesis 1-2. Describing the earth is formless before God created anything. Just think about this. This is telling us, I believe, that this scripture is picturing creation coming undone all the way down to the last level. And this picture here resembles the world kind of as clay in, on a potter's wheel, imagining itself to be independent and self-sufficient from the potter. I mean, can you imagine clay trying to form itself into a vase? Like, I can't even form like pottery into a vase. And yet it believes that it can independently make itself glorious apart from the potter. It decided that it did not need God to fashion it, and as a result of seeking to live in God's world without God, the world collapses on its head. That's the picture that we get here in this text. Now here's what's fascinating. Here Isaiah tells us that God's people will actually sing for joy on that day. I don't know about you, but that doesn't really, on the face of it, seem like a happy day. And yet, God's people, this is our main point, God's people will sing joyfully when He vindicates His glory through wrath on the last day. God's people will sing joyfully when He vindicates His glory through wrath on the last day. Now we see this first in verses 1 to 13, where we find that only a few will escape God's judgment on this world city. Only a, few, only a few are going to escape. Now, you know that the Bible, it will not let us relegate the God of Israel to the, sta- the status of some tribal deity. You know, some kind of parochial sort of God who really doesn't have much power outside of this small geographic region where people acknowledge Him. He's the God of the nations. He is worthy of all glory and all honor and all praise. And here we find Matthew Henry, he calls this the worldling city as a picture of the proud, self-sufficient world. And notice that verses 1 through 13, they are really exposing a few realities about what this coming day is going to look like. And it's a pretty bad day. Notice uh, first in verses 1 to 3, look there with me again. We we find here uh, an interesting picture of it. And you can look with me at at verse 2, verses 2 and 3. On this day when God empties the earth, verse 2 says, And it shall be as with the people, so with the priest. As with the slave, so with his master. And as with the maid, so with the mistress. As with the buyer, so with the seller. And with the lender, so with the borrower. And with the creditor, so the debtor. And earth shall be utterly empty and utterly plundered. For the Lord has spoken His word. Now, what's interesting here is in the midst of this, this list of contrasting pairs It's really envisioning a totality of humanity's experience, religiously, domestically, and commercially. Uh, The picture is that every person, group, and human will be utterly plundered. Now, did you catch Isaiah's explanation why this happens? He says, for the Lord has spoken His word. In other words, God has spoken judgment, and therefore this will come to pass. I say this again and again, but God never writes checks with His mouth that His hands cannot cash. He always carries through on what He says He is going to do. And here, we are told that He is going to bring about what He said, and in the context, He says, nobody's safe. Now, why is nobody safe? Well, look at verses 4 to 6. There we see it's because nobody's righteous. See, Isaiah says, the earth and the highest people mourn and groan as they languish and wither. Here, the whole earth 
His ward against humanity. And notice that the earth's languishing might not be its fault, but it is its problem, right? So verse 5, it explains that the earth's biggest problem with humanity, don't miss this, it's sin and not carbon emissions. Did you see that? It is the sin of man that is the biggest problem for our earth. It says in verse 5, the earth lies defiled under its inhabitants. Why? For they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. Now we really see three things here describing man and his sin. First, it says that he transgressed the laws. Uh, Now, that word for laws is actually the word for Torah. And if you've read the Bible, you know that the Torah speaks of the law that was given to Moses and to the people of God, Israel. But here, what's fascinating is who is involved in the scope of this is not just the Jews, but actually the whole world being held accountable for the law of God. See, I take this to mean that all of humanity has not lived in accordance with divine revelation. They have not responded to faithfully the Word of God. And second, you'll notice that they also violated the statutes with this idea that they altered truth. They rejected God's standards of morality and they created their own. Uh, In other words, they were postmodern before postmodern was cool. Uh, They decided that truth was in themselves and not God long before we imagined that. And third, notice that they broke the everlasting covenant. Now, the Bible uses uh, the words everlasting covenant uh, to describe a number of things in the Bible. We we find everlasting covenant describing the Noahic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, and a number of other, other covenants, and even the Sabbath. So what is it talking about here? Well, I, I don't know that it's limiting itself to one covenant, but Stephen Wellam says this about it, and he's coming uh, in a few weeks, so I thought, why not quote Stephen Wellam? Here's what he says. The most probable referent to the covenant made with Noah, which in reality established and upheld the covenant with creation in Genesis 1, reaffirming the commitment of the Creator to His creation and the responsibilities placed upon humans at that time. In other words, it's a covenant like the Noahic covenant in the sense that that was a covenant given to the whole world as God unleashed His wrath and started over with just Noah and his family. This is a a covenant that holds all of creation responsible. So what he's saying, what Isaiah is saying here is, is that everybody's guilty and nobody's righteous. But notice that a few escape in verse 6. A few escape. Therefore, uh, it says, therefore a curse devours the earth and its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. Therefore the inhabitants of the earth are scorched and a few men are left. Now Isaiah doesn't tell us why a few escape. Only that there are some who escape. Nobody's righteous, but some escape. I think this is really important. You know, some say religion is much like a straitjacket, right? That it it binds us from joy. That religion is really meant to give power to some and take it from others. Uh, We see that uh, mentioned uh, and said all over the place. That if we really want to pursue happiness and find ourselves and really make ourselves as much as we can be, then we need to get out from the shackles of religion. But catch this, the Bible says sin is the real killjoy. Sin is the thing that actually enslaves us and keeps us from being as fully human as God has created us to be. See, sin and sorrow, according to the Bible, they really go together like phoenix and sunlight. 
And if you don't know about that, there's a lot of sunlight in Phoenix. Now, I know it was cloudy today, but there's a reason that felt special. It's because it's almost always sunny and hot in Phoenix. And in the same way, sin and sorrow almost always go together. You might have a rainy day here or there, but in the end, it is always going to be misery when you give yourself over to sin. See, sin is exactly what God calls enmity with himself. Now, I I believe that sin actually has a voice in our hearts, and I I don't know exactly where this comes from, Uh, probably Satan, demons, other things, but there is a sinful nature within us that, that actually is even this side of the cross and faith in Christ speaking into our ear. And here's one of five lies that I hear from sin. Maybe you've heard these two. One, God is withholding true joy from you. Like he is absolutely just trying to hide the good stuff. He, he's giving you sort of the bad cookie, cookies that he gives to the guest, but he doesn't really actually expose you to the good cookies that he keeps for himself when everybody goes away, right? And some of you are like, yeah, we do that exactly. Well, I think sin tells you that God's doing that with you. Or second, that sin offers better joy than obedience, right? Like, man, I could obey God, but I'm not going to be as happy as if I sin. Ever heard that one? Or how about sin, not only that, uh, sin, but I think sin also lies about obedience, saying that obedience to God is bondage. Now, that is just super popular, right? Even culturally, if you obey God, that's bondage. Like, you're trying to, like, hold people in place and not let them realize themselves. Like, who are you to tell them who they can love and whatnot? Uh, What about this one? Fourth, the joy of obedience is small and short-lived. Like, if you obey God, it's maybe you'll be, like, a little bit happy because, like, you did what you knew you were supposed to. But it doesn't really lead to eternal joy like the Word of God promises. And fifth, that sin does not have consequences. Right? Sin is, is, is like the bait for the fish. And like, boy, he sees the food and it's exciting. And he never thinks for a moment about the hook. And it's the hook that always gets him. And it's the same way with sin. There's always that hook in sin that catches us. See, our culture celebrates sin against God as freedom, and it actually persecutes those who warn of the destructive effects of sin. You know, notice, if you're reading the Bible and you trust God as God and you believe Him and take Him as His Word, it says, God's Word says that sin always leads to sadness. Now, I know that sin might make you sing for a second like we're about to read about in this, in this worldly city, but just give it five minutes. Sin always has its consequences, and we haven't even yet seen the worst of it. You know, I I remember one time I was helping a woman who discovered that her husband was lacing her water with arsenic, and she was slowly dying, and she found out, she got it tested, and she realized that living in the Phoenix area where you need water constantly, that she was pursuing this water for refreshment, and slowly but surely, this water was killing her. Her, her lips became withered and, and began to turn white, and she was, she was getting sick. And, and here's the reality. All sin is like that arsenic in our water. If you're pursuing joy in sin, it ultimately leads to death. That's what it does. Sin always leads to sorrow. Sin can't maintain a joyful song. It always leads to sorrow, destruction, and devastation. Just notice in verses 17 to 13 what the demise of sinful joy looks like. That's the picture that we get in this city. Notice, in this city, nobody's singing anymore. Nobody's singing anymore in verses 7 to 13. Just catch this. You'll you'll notice, the world city whines when the wine runs out because they have no more joy. 
In verses 8 to 9, look there just for a, an illustration of this. In verses 8 to 9, it says, The mirth of the tambourines is stilled. Uh, and by the way, Malachi, can we get some tambourines up in here sometime? That'd be awesome. Um, the tambourines, notice, they grow silent in verse 8. The noise of the jubilant has ceased. The mirth of the lyre is stilled. No more do they drink wine with singing. Strong drink is bitter to those who drink it. In other words, here we find this people that seemed to have the best party. They were always joyful and happy. And yet here, their bitter beer leaves them sad. And they can't seem to get along when they're sober. I mean, did you notice in verse 10? It says that, that every house is shut up so that no one can enter. I'm just wondering, when you, when you go into a neighborhood and you see bars on every window and every door, and, and then you go inside, and, and they have like six deadbolts and a chain lock, are you really worried about what's inside or what's outside? Right? Maybe you're like, that's your, my home. But the point is, like you're thinking, like they're trying to keep somebody out, right? Here's a, a people, a culture, a community where nobody is trusted and everybody is violent and everybody is using one another. Why? Because their joy has not been found in God. It has been found in this world, for this world, and for themselves. They have no view of God in sight. And here what we find, and what's so startling, is that they show no concern for rebelling against God. They have broken the law. They have not kept His statutes. They have broken His covenant. And yet here what we find, the thing that gets them really upset, did you notice in verse 11 what it is? There is an outcry in the streets for lack of wine. All joy has grown dark, and the gladness of the earth is banished. I mean, talk about missing the point of life. They have no view of God in sight. Their neighborhood is dangerous and the gates of the city are destroyed. This is a worldly city turned in on itself and given over to sin. Their happiness depended on God's gifts, even though they didn't care about God. And when His gifts dried up, so did their joy, because their hearts did not see God as their greatest good. See, the chief end of man... According to the, the Bible and, and, and others who have studied and given themselves to the Word, the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying Him forever. That's what we have been created for. And yet we have here a picture of a culture who has decided to live by a different kind of theology and philosophy of life. And does this look like the kind of world that you want to live in? This is the world that we do live in. See, the problem with sin is, it isn't that it seeks joy, but that it seeks joy apart from God. See, happiness and holiness go together just like sin and sorrow, just like Phoenix in the sunlight. It, the, the joy that, that we long for in our soul so deeply, that is only to be found in God, and He won't let us have it anywhere else. Now, there's at least one, I believe, obvious application here. You know, we just had Jim Hughes uh, sharing with us this morning about uh, hope for addictions and the need for the gospel. But let me just say really clearly, self-medicating with alcohol and drugs might make you happy for a minute, but it will always end in sorrow and destruction. And it impedes the work of God. See, God's people don't need alcohol to sing joyfully. No, if we really know God, we have a melody in our heart that comes from God's Spirit, that gift of joy that actually is otherworldly. We're told the Holy Spirit gives us that in Galatians 5. We don't need to inebriate ourselves to the world around us and the way things are because we know the reality that is and that awaits us. And here we find in Ephesians 5, 18 to 19 that Paul actually warns his church in this way. 
He puts together the need to be careful about drinking and singing. Here's what he says. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Maybe this morning you need to repent of inebriating yourself, either literally or figuratively, to deal with this fallen world. The gospel has a better cure for what ails you than what the bottle does. We have the good news of Jesus Christ, our Lord, who has come to make us new. We are guilty uh, before God, and God has a better answer than our own, uh, our own desires to self-medicate. So be careful. Drinking can actually silence the Holy Spirit's warnings to you about the coming day of the Lord and depress the melody of your heart towards God. But I think there's a bigger problem here. Do you know that the Bible, do you know what the Bible actually says about the world? Do you know what the Bible actually says about you? Quoting David and Isaiah, again, Paul says that everyone on earth is guilty and that no one is righteous. Does that sound familiar? Sounds kind of like this text, doesn't it? And here's what he says in Romans 3, 10 to 11. He says, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. And then in Romans 23, he follows it up by saying, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then Romans 6 tells us the wages of sin is death and spiritual bondage, but the gift of God is eternal life. In other words, what God's word says about us, left to ourselves, is that we are guilty, filthy slaves facing the wrath of God and nobody's safe. You'll notice that sin is, is not living righteously according to God's righteous standard. And Paul says the biggest problem with your sin is that it misses the mark of glorifying God as God. In other words, you might be thinking to yourself right now, like, my biggest difficulty with obeying God is, like, taking joy in it. And, like, that's probably the biggest thing that I've done is, like, I've sort of robbed myself of the joy that I deserve because I'm pretty awesome most of the time. But the reality, according to the Bible, is our biggest problem is not that we're just robbing ourselves of joy, it's that we're robbing God of His glory. We have robbed God of His glory in every one of our sins, He is due all honor as our great creator and our sovereign Lord. We have actually robbed him of the thing that is most precious to him, which is the glory and beauty of his holy name. We have not magnified him as we ought. And so even as we think about our sin and our sin problems, we don't even think about those right because we are so broken and fallen. We don't think about the majesty of God as we ought. And so we don't see our sin as we should. See, I'm scared to death that some of you might this morning just be too American to listen to what God's word has to say about you. Most of us, as good Americans, value comfort, security, and self-esteem. That's what we love. We love to be very comfortable, right? I mean, every man needs his lazy boy. We, we want to be secure, so we need a secure system, and now, like, even with the little video cameras, because then we're safe, and we need to have self-esteem, right? Like, I can, I can fly twice as high. I need my kids to know that. They can do that. If they just read a book and take a look, like, everything will be different. So we don't like to think about God's righteous judgment, Especially when God's word says that we are guilty. You know, when God says we're guilty, it really makes us feel uncomfortable, insecure, and diminishes our self-worth. We'll even use the Bible to, to hide our guilt. Have you ever heard people do this? Maybe you've done this. You don't have to confess this morning, but have you ever had anybody like come to you and confront you about something, and the first verse that comes to mind, you're like, I'm going to hide behind the Bible, judge not lest you be judged. And you're like, but the Bible says you're guilty. And you're like, judge not lest you be judged. Do you not hear the words that are coming out of my mouth? Like that is the ultimate shield. You cannot speak to me about me. I don't care what the word of God says because God says you can't judge me. 
And yet, the justice of God is something that is very real. And here's my fear. It's that we have so ingrained in ourselves the reality that nobody can judge us that I believe that some hold that doctrine so strongly above every other doctrine that they literally believe that they can use that excuse not just, about, just around other people, but around Jesus himself. So that I think that on the last day when they come to heaven, Jesus, they're going to come before him, and they know they're guilty, and they're like, I'm ready for this. Jesus is like, you have, you have robbed me of my glory. And you're going to say, yeah, but you remember when you said, judge not lest you be judged? Yeah, judge not lest you be judged. And they think it's going to work. They think God's going to say, oh, you got me. You trapped me in my own language. And so, yeah, come on through. Folks, that's not the way that Jesus works. Like, that's not the way that, that text is spoken. You know, the reality is, Jesus is understanding the natural tendency that both of us have, most of us have, right? We don't like to talk about justice when it has to do with ourselves being guilty, but here's when we love to talk about the righteousness of God. When somebody has taken something from us, right? So like, when I get home at 10 o'clock and I'm tired and I want to watch ESPN and I show up and I can't find my remote control, I want righteousness to rain down, Right? Somebody's taken something that's mine, they've done something that is not right. Um, when I have misplaced uh, my wife's headphones, and she doesn't know where they are, and she's upset because I've not done what is right, I want her to be very merciful with me. We are so quick to see the speck in the eyes of others, and we are blind to the log in our own eyes. And that's what Jesus is talking about. He's saying, catch this, like you need to be aware that you yourself have guilt that you need to deal with that you're not dealing with. And maybe it's a good friend that needs to come and bring that to your attention. But here, the Bible, here's what it says to us, and you need to know this. It says that we are selfish, we are not safe, and we should not be comfortable. Nothing sobers us up to who we are like the coming of God's judgment. And we should be awake and vigilant, looking and ready for the judgment of God that he calls us to. And we need to recalibrate, I believe, our understanding of who we are in light of the glory of God in all of his perfections, not just some of them, and that includes his justice and his righteousness. But notice second here, God's people will sing glorifying the righteous one for judgment in verses 14 to 16. Now this is the, the, verse, the verses that seem a little bit strange to you maybe at first glance. Now I don't know about you, but um, uh, I, when I was growing up, watched Sesame Street. Um, I still might sometimes, but I remember Ernie, he played a game called, which one of these is not like the other? Do you, do you remember that? And so they would have like a picture of, of ducks, uh, and then there'd be like a, a, a goose somewhere in there. It's like, which one's not like the other? It's like, oh, the goose, right? And as you're reading through this text, it, it kind of has that same kind of feel. You almost feel like Isaiah cut, copied, and pasted this beautiful text and just put it like smack dab in the wrong place. Like they are singing joyfully to the glory of God amidst destruction everywhere. And notice what it says. Look with me at verses 14 to the first half of 16. Here's what it says. God's word says, they lift up their voices and they sing for joy. Over the majesty of the Lord, they shout from the west. Therefore in the east, give glory to the Lord. In the coastlands of the sea, give glory to the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. From the ends of the earth, we hear songs of praise, of glory to the righteous one. Now, you read that and you're thinking, how in the world? I mean, what's going on here? Who is the they? God has just devastated the whole earth. 
All of humanity. Nobody's guilty. Nobody's safe. I mean, nobody's uh, righteous. Nobody's safe. Nobody's singing anymore. And yet from this, a song arises. And who are they that are singing? I think it's those few who survived in verse 6. They are that remnant from every tribe, tongue, and nation that have experienced a unique saving grace of God amidst His judgment. After God's wrath is poured out, Isaiah hears a, a joyful song to the majesty of God erupt from the west and it grows louder until his people are literally so excited they are shouting of the majesty of God. And it looks like Isaiah almost kind of gets carried away as he hears this and gets excited. And in verse 15, he he then begins to call for the east and the far off islands to join in the song, giving glory to the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is God of all. And so we have him beckoning the nations to come from far off to join the song. Of course, we know that this song, praising the name of God, God's name speaks of his identity, is understood through his words and works. And I believe there are a couple of startling aspects to this song. First, notice the context of the song. It is smack dab in the middle of God's judgment being poured out on the world, leaving only a few behind. Very startling. Doesn't seem to fit there. And second, notice the name attributed to God specifically here. They sing songs of praise and glory to the righteous one. The righteous one. Doesn't say the loving one. It says the righteous one. Not the merciful one, but the righteous one. Why is that? Well, I appreciate what Alec Moyer says in his commentary. He writes this of this text. He says, theologically, it is worth noting that the incoming remnant are primarily aware of the righteousness of God who has saved them. In other words, his saving mercies are grounded in the satisfaction of his justice, not in the expression of his love. In other words, on this day, God's people sing of the beauty of God's just wrath being satisfied. What does that look like in context? Well, Creation is undone to the glory of the righteous one. See, righteous here simply means that all that God does here in this judgment on earth is right and good. God is good. And two words are used for God's glory here amidst all of this. You'll notice the first comes in verse 15. The, the, word, the typical word for glorious honor. But he uses another word for glory in verse 16. You can't see it in the English, but this is a word that really means beauty. And so God's people here in all of this judgment, they see the beauty and glory of their patient God setting things right through this righteous one. But notice what they're not doing. They're not questioning whether God's rules were fair, or whether God is good, or whether God is just. In fact, the devastation doesn't even seem to sadden them. It's actually in the the process of eliciting their joy. As God devastates the world, the few who survive erupt in song over the beauty and glory of the righteous one. How can they ascribe beauty to the devastating wrath of God? I think there's just really a missing link here in Isaiah. If nobody's righteous, what makes these few survivors different so that they can sing while the others stop singing? How can the righteous sing joyfully to the righteous one? Well, I think what's interesting is if you continue to read in Isaiah and you come to Isaiah 53, you'll find that the king 
that Israel longed for to come and set them free and to make things right was also a suffering servant who would lay down his life for his people. And in Isaiah 53, verses 10 and 11, God tells us that this Messiah that they longed for is actually the righteous one. And in verse 11, he says this of him. He says, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. See, this side of the cross, we know that Jesus is this righteous one. And Paul explains this missing link in Romans 3 again, verse 20, where he says no human being will be justified in God's sight based on their keeping of the Torah. Same thing Isaiah was saying, right? Keeping of the law will not justify you, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin and guilt. But Paul goes on to say, I'm so glad he doesn't stop there. He says this, he says the righteousness of God has actually been, has actually been manifested or appeared to you and me apart from the law. And in 3.22, Romans 3.22, he says this, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and they are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation, a satisfaction of His wrath for our sins by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness Because in his divine forbearance, he has passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Don't miss this. Those who are saved through judgment revel in God's glorious righteousness. Here, they are not singing first of the love of God, though they would sing of that. They're not even singing here of the holiness of God, though it's not unrelated. And not not that they wouldn't do that, but notice here they are singing about His just wrath being exhausted. This this only makes sense if their standard of right and wrong is not themselves, but God's glory. I love uh, what Toby Jennings had to say about this. He taught on the attributes of God recently, and he was speaking about the attributes of God and just made mention of the reality that uh, once they were actually referred to as the perfections of God. And the reason they were called the perfections of God is because it was understood that all that God is and all that He is is absolutely perfect. In other words, if we come before one of God's attributes and we have a problem with it, we know the problem is not with Him but with us, right? So in other words, if we have a problem with God's righteousness, that ought to undo us like Isaiah so that we say, woe is me, because we realize, you know what, it can't be the perfect one, it must be me that has something wrong. I'm the one that needs to change, not God. And here we find that the people of God on this last day, when they are fully removed from sin and its effects, see everything clearly, they see God clearly, and His glory is elevated above all other things. There is no flinching at whether or not God desires glory in everything that He does. There are no questions about whether or not God has been fair, or good, or just, and right, and all that He does, because we see the world clearly, and we see God as He is. This is a great day that's coming. This is the day that describes all of us who are in Christ. See, our glorious God is perfect in all that He is. He is perfectly just perfectly loving, perfectly righteous, and perfectly merciful. And those who are saved understand that the chief end of man is not self-esteem, but the glorification of God as God. Now, please just hear me this morning. If you really want to glorify God, that means that you need to take God for all that God is. I know that some of us 
and maybe at various times, want to, in some ways, emphasize some aspects of God's while diminishing others. You know, some of us really want to emphasize the love of God, and I love to emphasize the love of God. I don't think that we can focus enough on the love of God unless we start to not pay attention to the righteousness of God or His holiness. Because if we do not understand His righteousness and His holiness, we will not understand His love, and we will begin to imagine that the love of God means that God is not righteous, and there's no judgment that's coming, and that everybody's fine, and nobody needs to really change anything, because guess what? God's just love. But God's not just love. He is perfectly loving, and He is perfectly merciful, and He is perfectly just, and He is perfectly righteous. And there is a coming day when we will not only not cower before the righteousness of God, we will celebrate the righteousness of God. In fact, I believe that day has already arrived in part because Jesus Christ has come. And as we behold Jesus Christ, we behold what face to face? The very glory of God. So that if we see the Son, we have seen the Father. We have beheld Him. And we see the righteousness of God in the face of Christ. And how do we see that? We see it at the cross of Christ, where He fully satisfied the wrath of God. In other words, the reason that these folks are able to sing on this day, at least one reason, is not just because it's God being God, but because they realize that they have had the, the wrath of God that was for them and just satisfied. Just think about this. If you really just, just meditate on the fact that you are a sinner as the Bible says you are, that you are not righteous left to yourself, that you are guilty and you're worthy of the wrath of God, and you think about that and you let that sort of set in, And then you begin to realize that in the midst of that, Jesus Christ came in as your superhero and stood between you and the wrath of God, and he absorbed it in such a way that he exhausted the wrath of God for you to the very last drop so that you don't have to worry about the wrath of God anymore in Christ. Do you see how all of a sudden you're like, well, the love of God actually just became a little bit more beautiful because I see it in the context of the righteousness of God. That's the way that we view the Word of God and the love of God and the righteousness of God. That is what God says about us and about Him and about His Son. See, if you're not a Christian this morning, you need to know that you're not safe left to yourself. And you are guilty before God. And that's what God's Word says about you. And what you need is not to let God teach you how to be a good person. That's not why you're here today. And it's not to let him be like your buddy. That's not the gospel. You need to be saved from the wrath of God. And only Jesus can love you in a way that can save you from that. Only he can deliver you from the righteousness of God, the righteous judgment that you deserve, and make you righteous as a sinner. And don't leave here. Please don't leave here without talking to someone about how to find God's mercy in Christ. Because notice how Isaiah loses it in the second half of verse 16. He he can't even finish celebrating what God has just done. And he he dips into despair and terror as the saints sing joyfully. Notice verse 16b, what he says. And I'll read all the way to 18. Listen to this. He says, in the midst of this song of joy, he breaks away and says, I waste away, woe is me, for the traitors have betrayed. With betrayal the traitors have betrayed. Tear in the pit and the snare are upon you, O inhabitant of the earth. He who flees at the sound of the terror shall fall into the pit, and he who climbs out of the pit shall be caught in the snare. Do you see it? He's saying that the consequence of your sin, it's going to follow you. You're going to seek to escape it. You'll fall into a pit, and when you get out of the pit, a snare's waiting you. It's been set for you. There is no escape from the just wrath of God for your sins. And that's why 
He is terrified. See, Isaiah here says exactly what he said in Isaiah 6.5, woe is me, but this time he's not talking about himself, but the nations amidst judgment, even as the saints sing to the glory of God. It's this humanity who are traitors who have betrayed, who are so desperately untrustworthy and unrighteous. They run before the terror of God's judgment, and there is nowhere to go. They cannot flee from it. In fact, you'll notice that word, windows of heaven, that's used in verse 18. That's actually used also in the story of Noah when the flood breaks out from heaven. Here we find that God's wrath has been poured out yet again, even worse than what happened with Noah. The foundations of the earth shake because the presence of God and His glory has drawn near. But not only that, notice that in verses 21 to 23, God's wrath humbles the proud and it exalts His glory. That's the goal. Notice that's the end. It says in verse 21, On that day, the Lord will punish the host of heaven in heaven, and the kings of the earth on the earth. They will be gathered together as prisoners in a pit. They will be shut up in a prison. And after many days, they will be punished. Then the moon will be confounded, and the sun ashamed, for the Lord of hosts reigns in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and His glory will be before His elders. Notice that God is punishing the host of heavens in heaven. In other words, he's not like out of his territory to be there judging the host of heaven. And I believe these are the rulers and authorities spoken of in Ephesians 6 to 12, demonic forces. They are facing the justice of God. And they sought to exalt themselves above God, invite others to place their trust in them rather than the one true God, robbing him of his what? His glory. And not only that, the kings of the earth, they too tried to take glory from God. They sought to terrify others. And they will face the terror of the Lord. Even the moon and the sun, (laughs) nature itself, will be ashamed before the glorious beauty of the Lord of hosts. Jesus Christ, as He takes His seat as King on Mount Zion with God the Father, the moon and the sun hang their heads. Why? Because they usually get all the attention. There's no light like the moonlight and the sunlight. And yet on this day, Jesus walks in and they look so dim in the beauty, in the eyes, and the face of the beauty of the Lord. There is no day like this. And just as God revealed His glory to Moses with His 70 elders in Exodus 24, God says that He will reveal His glory to the elders in Revelation 5. And we, His people, will all see the glory of the righteous one forever enthroned before us. And on that day, God's people will sing joyfully, when he vindicates his glory through the wrath, through his wrath on the last day. I'm just curious, are you ready for that day? Are you ready for the day? Well, let me just leave you with, with really quick, five quick things, four quick things that the wrath of God ought to do to us in the way that we think about life. One, if we really believe in the wrath of God, we should be killing sin before sin kills us, like John Owen said. If we really believe in the wrath of God, if, if we just think that God is loving and not righteous, then we kind of like can treat people however we want. But if we believe that God is righteous, then that means that the love actually has lines that determines and defines what it looks like to love. And God has shown us what love looks like. It looks like sacrificing ourselves for others rather than seeking what we can get from them. Second, obey God because it leads to holiness and everlasting joy. You remember that lie of of Satan and sin that says, if you're obedient, you know, it might give you a little bit of joy, but not as much as sin? See, the actual opposite is true. If we're obedient to God and we follow Him, we give our lives to following Christ, we are promised life and joy everlasting. 
that is actually much greater than anything we can imagine in this life. This is the basement, not the ceiling of God's plans for us. Obey God because it leads to holiness and everlasting joy. Third, rejoice in God being God. And kill any ways you are flinching at rejoicing in all that He is. Study His attributes, His perfections. Love them all. And when you find yourself not loving one of God's attributes, ask God to change your heart so you can see Him in all of His glory and beauty. And finally, evangelize. Share Christ with others. If you really believe that sin is robbing from God's glory, and you really love others and believe that His righteous wrath and justice is coming, then won't you share Christ with others, with those who you love, and maybe even some of your enemies, because you know that they need Christ? They will not be righteous apart from Christ. So let's share Christ with others like we really believe in the wrath of God. Let's pray.